I want to draw your attention tonight to Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah, his very name bears the name of God in that I-A-H. His name means God throws down, God hurls down into history. This man who in many ways seemed to be Jesus' favorite prophet. In the 18th chapter, we're given a brief image and a story about a trip to the potter's house. Please listen to Holy Scripture. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I shall announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay kept on being marred in the hand of the potter, so he kept on remaking it. <laughs> he kept on remaking it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. <laughs> I've, uh, I've seen this in multiple places. I remember standing outside the cave of Machpelah, hard by the tomb of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. There was a potter. He claimed to be the 18th generation of his family that turned clay on wheel. There was a mountain of moist, pliable, plastic clay. I watched him. He said, my family's done it for 18 generations. Far away from there, one time working with missionary surgeon Rebecca Naylor outside of Bangalore in India. We were way out, out back, off the, off the road. There was no road, and there was a potter doing the same thing. A wheel turned and clay on the wheel yielding to the hand of the potter. All I have to do in Texas is go across the border to the Pueblos in Mexico, and you see it there. It, it's an interesting thing that God seems to have chosen a craft that has never changed to carry a truth about himself that has never changed. And that is when you put your Life in the hands of the divine potter, your failure need never be final. Now, it's interesting, this word came to Jeremiah. It didn't say, now, Jeremiah, go down to Solomon's temple, and there at the citadel of the faith, I'll show you. No. He didn't say, go to a convocation of the priests, and there you'll see it. No. He sent him to the most common of places in Jerusalem, a potter's house, making daily useful pottery. Go down there, and I'll cause you to hear my word. I'll leave you three images tonight because I do believe this was intentionally very visual, very narrative 
It talks about how God makes a person, how life mars a person, and how God can mend a person from this simple image. <laughs> Potter, well, the potter's like God in one way and one way only, like any metaphor. There's a yes and a no in it. He's like God in one way, and that is this. As the creator God, God has the right to touch your life when and where and how he wants to touch it. I believe Chuck Colson was absolutely right when Colson said in the 20th and 21st century, the big question of theology is not redemption, it is creation. Because if there's not a creator God to whom you belong, redemption is beside the question. The basis of this passage is a belief that there is a God who made you and that God has the right to touch your life when and where and how he wants to touch it because he's created. Now, that's where the difference with the human potter stops. The analogy stops there because no human potter ever made the clay <laughs> which he turns on the wheel. You understand that everything human beings make is a recombination of things that human beings cannot make. Did I say that again? Everything that humans make is combining things that humans cannot make. A human can't make clay, but a human can shape clay. I remember a story from a preacher here in London 150 years ago or more uh, when uh, Prince Albert had presided over building the crystal a palace, that huge building made out of iron and glass. And he was the afternoon preacher at St. Paul's Cathedral. He was an Orthodox uh, high church Anglican. And Henry Perry Lydon was talking about the self-congratulation of the high Victorians in building that building of glass and iron, the biggest thing that had ever been built. And he said, yes, you can make that building, but you cannot create one insect that lands on the glass. And what he was saying by that is, there's an element of givenness in God's creative power. And really, unless you're convicted by that, by the Spirit of God, from the Word of God, then anything else I say <laughs> becomes beside the point. If you're simply a fortuitous combination of atoms, a cosmic accident, this wouldn't make any sense. But if God is indeed a creating God, Every potter differs from him because no potter made the clay which he shapes. A human potter is different in another way. No human potter is ever free from some flaw in technique, some lack of dexterity. I've watched them. One thing that marks clay turned on a wheel is that it's never quite exactly perfect. It's not exactly symmetrical. Human potters will always have some flaw in technique that shows up some way. Had you allowed the divine potter to touch your life when and where and how he wanted to, his touch would always be perfect. Human potter doesn't make the clay and doesn't have a perfect touch. We say, well, what about the clay? You're saying I'm just a piece of clay? Well, this is an analogy. It's, an, it's a metaphor. You're like clay in one way and one way only. You were designed to yield to the touch of the divine potter. 
the deepest thing about you. As intrinsic as the DNA that I tried to preach about this morning is that you were designed to yield to his touch. There's a sense in which three skeletal hands reach over history from the 19th over the 20th into the 21st century that tell you the deepest truth about you. And they still reach over those centuries. Darwin reaches over those centuries and said, really, you are just a little better addition of an animal. Freud reaches over that century from Vienna and says, the truth about you is that you're a walking civil war of id and ego and superego, these urges in you. Marx reached over and says, the truth about all of us is an economic war. And we have been defined by other truths. The biblical revelation is that the deepest truth about you is that you're not just a little better animal. You're not just a walking psychological civil war. You're not just the object of impersonal economic forces. The deepest truth about you is that you were made to yield to God's hand. And nothing defines you more than that. And you won't find peace and meaning and fulfillment and purpose until you come to say, you're like clay in one way. You were made to respond to the potter's touch. You're not like clay in another way. <laughs> this is almost so obvious, it's painful to say it. No clay ever said to the potter, I'm not going to have you touching me there. And no clay ever leaped off the wheel and nailed the potter's hand to a cross and said, that's how much I'm not going to have you interfere with my life. The awful possibility of human clay. But what about the wheel? You say, well, I understand that. My life just goes in circles. <laughs> There's a sense in which the implication there is that. That wheel and analogy in the potter's shop has to do with the days of our lives. Some days spinning us by bright, success, and just as quickly, another day spinning us by deep defeat, some days of elation, some days of depression, some days of achievement, some days of loss. It's life. Sometimes after I preach, somebody will come to me at the door of the church and say, Joel, you just don't understand my circumstances. And they say it to me like they were the first person in history who had circumstances. Let me give you an insight. Everybody's got circumstances. There's a funny cartoon in the New Yorker magazine. Adam and Eve were leaving the Garden of Eden, and Adam says to Eve, Dear, we're living in days of transition. We've all got <laughs> days of transition. And in the providence of God, the very circumstances that someone here says break you are the circumstances God wants to use to make you. Now, these are the images in the making of a person, the implications from this little story. The potter, the clay, the wheel. But then something happens in this short narrative. Jeremiah is watching the potter, potter and all of a sudden a frown creases his brow, a look of concern is etched into his face. His hands become hesitant because it says, and it's in the past progressive tense, 
the, the vessel kept on being marred in the hand of the potter. Now, we don't know. It could have been a rock in the clay. It could have been a dry place. It could have been a stick. But something in it was resistant to the hand of the potter. And it says it kept on. Every time it turned around, something wouldn't yield to, to his craft. Now, here's a question that raises. Whose fault is it that the clay wouldn't yield? In this analogy... Some of us like to blame the potter. We say to God what Paul says in Romans 9, we can't say, can the clay say to the potter, why have you made me like this? <laughs> in 54 years of preaching, I'm in my 54th year. I told them Friday night I started when I was two. No, <laughs> I've had plenty of folks come to me, and when I got past their presenting problem and got right down to it, they were mad at the potter. Do <laughs> you know a whole great deal about your life you didn't get a vote in? I was born in 1948. You can figure that out on your calculator. <laughs> I wasn't born in 1848 or 1748. I didn't get a vote in that. I was born in Fort Worth, Texas, out on the Texas Prairie, not here in London or not in Paris or not in Beijing, not in Moscow. I didn't get a vote in that. All of us have givens in our life. But some of us never get past wanting to blame the potter. It's like George Bernard Shaw in his arrogance. Someone said, didn't he need God's forgiveness? And it's, Shaw said, well, it never occurred to me that he ought to forgive me. I think I ought to forgive him. Some of us have that sense. Why did you make me Thus, and we blame the potter because the clay didn't yield. You know when that comes out? comes out when the pressure gets on life. I, I've been fishing up on the Arizona-Utah border. You might not be familiar with that, but it's in the middle of the desert where they dammed up the Colorado River, and it filled up the equivalent of the Grand Canyon in 1963. Lake Powell filled up an equivalent of the Grand Canyon. So you fish out under these cliffs of sheer rock. You can stay there a week and not see anybody else. And one day I was fishing. It rained in the desert and some smoke came out of the sand, plumes of smoke. I ask a fishing guide, why is smoke coming out of the desert? He said, long time ago, nobody knows when jagged forks of lightning made their way down through cracks in those rocks and ignited subterranean deposits of coal. And the coal burns there, but you never know it until some rain falls. <laughs> I've seen folks like that. When the rain falls into life, the smoke comes out and they point at the potter. Let me tell you what kind of potter he is. James, the younger half-brother of Jesus. James, the brother from the same mother who grew up in that Nazarene home with Jesus. James put it best of all. He said, every good and perfect gift comes from above. If I've got a friend of my name, if I've got an ounce of health, if I've got sense in my head, that's a gift of God. Don't blame the potter because the clay didn't work out. <laughs> well, there's another group. They like to blame the wheel. Remember, I mentioned them. You just don't know my circumstances. 
the wheel of life has not turned out like I wanted it to, so they blame circumstances that the clay never yielded to the potter's hand. I share with you out of the leaves of my own life the one thing in my life that made that so clear to me that I've never been able to escape it. I was 15 years old. I was a student at a high school on the west side of my hometown, and I woke up on a drizzling, rainy November morning, borrowed my father's Oldsmobile automobile built by General Motors, drove downtown Fort Worth in the dark, got right up by a police barricade because the President of the United States had spent the night in the hotel downtown. And there was a rumor that he might come out and greet the people. I was 15, I'd never seen a president. I got right up by that barricade, and sure enough, I remember it like an hour ago. I mean, the door opened, and out walked John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And like some kind of appointment, he walked right over to the barricade where I was standing, and I shook his hand. I looked into that rusty red hair, those blue Irish eyes, and then I shook Lyndon Johnson's hand, the vice president, and the governor of Texas, John Conley. All of us of a certain age remember where we were at 1.15 that afternoon. I was in a biology class washing a flask when they put the news commentator, Walter Cronkite, on the radio. And he said Kennedy had been assassinated 30 miles away. I remember to this day, I looked at my hand. But that's not why I'm telling you this story. I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. A few weeks later, a librarian came down the vast central staircase of our high school with an old-fashioned library card from a book, and it had written on it the name Lee Harvey Oswald, the putative assassin of the president. And it came out from that moment with some investigation that shortly before he'd been a student at that very high school where I was a 15-year-old student and he had grown up down the street from where I grew up. He'd gone up and down the same boulevard under the steeples of the same churches. He'd had some of the same teachers who still remembered him, played on the same fields. And I had already publicly surrendered to be a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I remember in my high school brain, I was thinking, what a stunning thing. Here was somebody who grew up in the same neighborhood, likely went inside some of the same churches, had the same teachers. But the clay on that wheel came out so differently. When you stand in the presence of Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, hear me please, you're not going to be able to blame the wheel. <laughs> oh, what's left, it's a pretty simple process of elimination. If you can't blame the potter and you can't blame the wheel, responsibility rests with the clay. We sing a hymn of appeal sometime, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay.
And in the simplicity of this picture, that's where it leaves you. Will the clay yield to the potter's hand? Now, here's the good news, and I'll sit down. We've talked about how God makes a person, how life mars a person. It's the clay's responsibility, not the wheel of the potter. But how does God mend a person? This is the good news. This is the gospel in it. Well, first of all, the mending is the patience of the potter. That's why I literally translated it, kept on being marred, so he kept on making it again. Is there anybody here tonight who could give a testimony? Thank God he didn't give up on me years ago. I can. Look at Moses. You think God's finished with you? Look at Moses. He spent 40 years as a prince in Egypt. That meant being carried around in a sedan chair, being manicured, oiled down every day. He was like a god. And then he spent 40 years out in the desert as an assistant shepherd. He wasn't even the head shepherd. And then the last 40 years, pulling off the exodus. Dwight L. Moody, who uh, would preach uh, in England and the United States, uh, used to talk you know, real fast and sometimes not clearly. He said Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody, 40 years finding out that without God he's nobody, and then the last 40 years finding out what God can do with somebody who finds out without God he's a nobody. 120 years. Now come close to me. I, here's where I wish I could sit down at the table with someone here tonight who feels like God has given up on me. I've said one thing too many. I've gone one place too many. I've touched one thing too many. No divine Process is patience. Somebody here tonight could have been at an intersection in the road one minute earlier or one minute later, and you wouldn't be here, but you're here. Somebody here could have been in the wrong place at the wrong time a minute or later, but by God's patience, you are here. And it's the goodness of God, Paul says, that leads us to repentance. Sometimes you just see that in the rearview mirror. You don't really see it out of the front. You see it looking backwards. Oh, I see that. Our Bart told the story about a man in Switzerland who was caught in a snowstorm and he was going across an alpine lake with horses and sleigh. And the only thing he could do in the storm was see a pale light on the lake shore and he finally got there. It was an inn. He went in, begged for a place to stay. He asked the innkeeper uh, if he had a room. He said, I have a room. The innkeeper asked the man with the sleigh, where have you been? And he said, I've just spent an hour coming from this way. And the innkeeper went, <gasps> you've been on thin ice for an hour. Last night, horse, rider, and sleigh fell into that lake and he didn't know he was on thin ice until it was all over. Is there anybody here who looking back at life could say, I've been on thin ice and by the mercy of God, I got where, that's God's patience. But there's something else here. Now, don't, 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 I'm not making this up, but it is a legitimate implication from this text. There's something that's not mentioned. It's a glaring absence, but it would have been there. And that's the kiln, the fire. When you turn something on the wheel, it's not useful until it gets fixed in the fire. I've talked to people who take ceramic lessons, and some of them have told me even the, the paint and the gloss that's put on raw clay doesn't have a sheen until it's fixed in the fire. 
And so it's a legitimate implication that what was turned on that wheel was fixed in a fire. And it cannot be among the hundreds of people here tonight that there's not someone here in a family fire, a health fire, a business fire, a vocational fire, a career fire, and you say, I'm in the fire. What God turns on the wheel, he fixes in the fire. And that's his intention. And if you're in the fire right now, it may be a matter of divine timing that brought you to this moment, this Sunday night, for the clay to yield to the potter. So that's wonderful. I'll just keep waiting for that. I'm going to sit down, but I want you to cast your eye. I'm not going to preach a whole other sermon. I'm just going to read the first two verses of the next chapter. Another day, the Lord says to Jeremiah, go buy a potter's earthenware jar. Take some of the elders of the people and some of the senior priests and go to the valley of Ben-Hinnom, which is by the entrance to the potsherd gate, and proclaim them the words that I shall tell you. And then God says, take that fired vessel and while the city council and the ministerial alliance are there with you, break it. If you go to that valley in Jerusalem, even today and dig down a little ways, you find potsherds, broken pieces of pottery that didn't quite work out. It's an image to me, and that is in those potter's houses when it wouldn't yield, when finally it wouldn't yield. You could go out the back door in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, a broken piece of pottery that didn't work out. Instead of going out of the front door for usefulness in the city. Another day, another time, and it was probation time. Whenever I read that text or think through it and pray through it over the years, I think about a church house just like this. Somebody sitting here tonight is going to yield to the potter and you'll go out that door for usefulness in the city for the potter's purposes. But somebody else will go out a back door of a broken piece of human pottery that just never yielded to the potter's hand. See, that's a downer. No, let me tell you the very best news. Centuries after Jeremiah wrote this, the potter became the clay. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when the potter touches you, he touches you with a hand stained with the blood of Calvary. How much did he want to shape your life? So much so that the wheel of life spun out for him a cross. The potter became the clay. Now, someone tonight has an appointment with the potter. In a matter of divine timing, 
God didn't say go down to the potter's house, but for whatever reason, he said go down to Kensington Temple. There's somebody in this balcony around on these transepts, this lower floor. And you came in here with a sense of blaming the circumstances of your life. You don't understand. It's my husband, my wife, my ex, my boss, my this, my that. You fill in the blank. And that hasn't made your life one bit better. Or you came in here and you said, if there is a God, I'm mad at him. My life hasn't turned out the way I wanted. And under the Spirit of God, this is your moment to recognize that the potter loved you so much that he became the clay. The Word became flesh in Jesus and dwelled among us. And the potter touches you with a hand stained from Calvary. I want us to bow for prayer a minute. I'm going to pray, and the ministry of the church is going to come to the platform and in its own way open this altar in its own way challenge you with this moment. Lord, I pray now that the Spirit of God may use these ancient words, holy words, convicting words, to speak to someone's life tonight that is marred on the wheel of life. And in so speaking, draw them into a living relationship with a risen Savior, Still our hearts, Lord. Speak to us. May your spirit blow like a wind and glow like a fire. And may that one somebody for whom this is the word that changes life say yes this very evening. We ask it prayerfully in Jesus' name. Amen.